We're going to pick up tonight in the book of Ezekiel. And we're going to slow down and just cover three chapters. Um, It's not necessarily because they're going to take long to get through. It's because once we hit chapter 40, the rest of Ezekiel is one large piece. And so we'll spend next week and the week following in 40 through 48. And so we just needed to um, do 37, 38, and 39 tonight. Before we pick up here in chapter 37, I, I just want to remind you of what's going on in, uh, in chapter 36. Okay, so, so at this point, the judgment that Ezekiel's been talking about for almost a decade has come to pass. Jerusalem has been sacked. Uh, Israel is removed from the land entirely just as Ezekiel would said. And then the book, as we saw last week, pivots, and he begins to look beyond judgment and unto hope. And what's important to us tonight is what he says in chapter 36, beginning in verse 33. Thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited, and the waste places shall be rebuilt, and the land that was desolate shall be tilled. Instead of being the desolation that it was in sight of all who passed by, and they will say that land was desolate and has become like the Garden of Eden. And so he looks forward to a time where Israel will be uh, replanted, will be repopulated, where the nation of Israel will be renewed, um, where the mountains of Israel will be recultivated. And so now in chapter 37, we see a fresh vision and maybe one of the most famous ones in the book. Look with me at chapter 37, verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. Okay, and so Ezekiel has a vision here, and like the visions we've seen in other places, it's as if he's picked up and transported, and he's set in this huge valley, and all he can see is just skeletal remains laying everywhere. Verse 2, and he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. Okay, so get the picture here. One of the natural questions we would ask is, if there's this valley and it's full of skeletal remains laying out on the ground, how did they get there? And the obvious answer in Ezekiel's day is that this is the site of a massive battle, right? It is a, uh, a people that have been slaughtered. And we need to recognize, I mean, one, one part of this picture is very easy to get, right? And that's death. These skeletons are dead, very dead even, right? But there's a second thing that usually goes over our heads as modern people on the other side of the world, and that's the, uh, the shame and even the uncleanness of this, okay? Because if these skeletons are here, if they are very dry, as it says, then they've laid out here to rot. Right? They've been unburied, left exposed to the elements. And if you go back to, uh, to the book of Deuteronomy, Israel wasn't even allowed to treat their worst criminals or their worst enemies like this. They weren't to leave bodies exposed, but to bury them quickly 
because of the shame. And so when Ezekiel sees this vision, what he sees is something that's both deadly and, and in a very large sense, genocidal even, uh, and also something that is desecrating, right? That is shameful. In fact, um, if we go all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 28. So this is all the way in the final days of Moses as he's leading Israel before they've even entered the promised land and Moses gives a final sermon to his congregation Israel. And what happens is in Deuteronomy 28, he starts to warn them about the future. He warns them specifically of what will happen to them if they don't obey the covenant that God has made with them. And one of the interesting things that we don't have time to really demonstrate in this chapter, but you can go back and read it on your own, is that he shifts from talking about this could happen, hypothetical, to this will happen, prophetic, okay? And so he starts to walk through exactly how Israel's history is going to go. And the portion that I want to draw your attention to is in Deuteronomy 28, starting in verse 25. It says, The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. And you shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. And your dead bodies shall be food for all the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth and there shall be no one to frighten them away. Okay, This is, by the way, kind of the ending of the, the curse portion. And so the culmination is this type of destruction and desecration that Ezekiel is seeing. And it's not just Moses who talks in these words, but also uh, Jeremiah, Ezekiel's contemporary, a prophet who actually was in Jerusalem, when it was sacked and endured the destruction of Jerusalem. So look, just a few books before Ezekiel in the book of Jeremiah 34. Starting here in verse 17. Therefore, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me by proclaiming liberty, everyone to his brother and to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim to you liberty to the sword. To pestilence and to famine, declares the Lord. I will make you a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. Sound familiar? Right, that's Moses' language from Deuteronomy. 18, and the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, a reference to Deuteronomy, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and pass between its parts. The officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, all the people of the land who pass between the parts of the calf, and I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their lives. And then notice this, their dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. Okay, so here's, here's the scoop. Effectively, what Ezekiel is seeing in picture form is exactly what has happened. And we need to remember how significant this would be to Ezekiel as well as to Israel. Starting about uh, a couple hundred years prior to the day that Ezekiel has this experience, the first thing bad, if you will, that happens to Israel is Assyria comes in, defeats the northern Ted tribes, Samaria being its capital, and carries them off. Okay? Judah hangs on, and they're there, and then 
in the beginning of the book of Ezekiel, you remember that Babylon then shows up and comes in and takes the cream of the crop of Judah. It takes King uh, Jehoiachin and all of his elders and all the wealthy merchants and Ezekiel and carries them off and leaves just the middle class and below in Jerusalem. And then 10 years later, he returns because uh, Judea is still not obeying his commands and he destroys and he levels the city. Now the prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, they all are written to explain, Israel, this is your fault. This is because of your sins. In fact, it's a demonstration, Ezekiel has said so far, of God's faithfulness to his word. Because he said this was going to happen in Deuteronomy. If they would not obey the words of the covenant, these things would come upon them. But now what? Now there is no nation Israel. Now there is no temple. Remember the one that Solomon built? It's gone. Now there is no priesthood. There is no sacrifices. There is no nation. It's dead. What does this mean for the promises given to Abraham? What does this mean for the promises given to David? Israel's whole history had a eschatological orientation. It was future-oriented. It looked towards things that had not yet happened And now all of those lay just as dead and as dry as the bones in this valley. This vision would naturally resonate with Ezekiel's audience. This is exactly the problem. In fact, we'll see when he gets to the interpretation uh, that it connects with his audience. But I want you to notice what happens here in verse 3. So he walks around the bones, and then in verse 3, he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? These are not mostly dead people, right? They're not on life support. They're not praying for a miracle that they'll come out of the coma. These are not just dead bodies, corpses. They're skeletons. It's a weird question, isn't it? Can these bones live? But notice Ezekiel's answer. I would suggest to you he probably gets the right answer. He says, and I answered, oh, Lord God, you know. Right? He could have said no. But he just defers answering entirely. He says, God, that's for you to answer. That's for you to know. Verse 4, then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. So he calls him to speak over the bones and to speak on God's behalf and say, because God speaks These bones shall live. Now, if you go all the way back to the beginning of Genesis, this isn't really surprising for God. God speaks and things happen. In the beginning, there was nothing, and then God spoke, let there be light, and guess what? There was light. And so here, he calls Ezekiel to speak over these dead and dry bones, and in doing so, he says he's going to bring breath into them and make them live. In fact, look at verse 6. I will lay sinews upon you, and I will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Okay? So this isn't some sort of dancing around skeletons, you know, like a haunting. It's also not some sort of, as we'll see, zombie happening, a living death. It is is resurrection that we're talking about. It's new life from nothing, from death. Um... But doesn't verse 6 make you very happy that they didn't make a 
a movie of this scene in the 80s. Like, I'm so tired of seeing bodies melt and be re-knit together in 80s films. They don't age very well. But nonetheless, that's what we're talking about here. It's this, it's this, you know, flesh and then veins and then skin coming over it. And then suddenly, just like in the films where somebody's hit with the paddles, right? Resuscitation and a gasp of breath and there they are alive. Now, as we've seen is the pattern in the prophets. God says to his prophets, speak thus and then they speak. And so that's what we see in verse 7. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews upon them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Okay, so the first time he speaks, and the bodies are reanimated, but they're not alive. They're fully enfleshed corpses, as fresh as the day they died, but they're still not alive. Verse 9, then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath. Thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. Notice the little confirmation of our understanding of how these bodies became dead, right? They didn't die of natural causes, they were slain. But he says, prophesy to the breath that it will breathe on them and they will live So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Now, just a few things here. One of the things I want you to notice is how this happens in two parts, right? He says, son of man, prophesy, and they will live. And that's not what happens. The flesh comes on, the bones knit together, the skin comes upon, but they still need breath. And so that happens in a second part, and he calls upon the breath, and it breathes on them, and they live. One of the interesting connective points between this passage and another part of the Bible is when you look at the creation of Adam in Genesis 2. Now, we don't have to turn there to make this point, because you're probably familiar, but what does God do first? He forms Adam out of the dust, out of the ground, and then he breathes in Adam and makes him a living being, it says in Genesis 2, verse 7. I would suggest to you that's probably why it's got the two-part structure here. We're not just seeing resurrection, we're seeing new creation. Okay? We're seeing God doing something that should remind us of Adam, and we don't have time tonight. We might touch on this a little bit next week and the week following, to trace the line from Adam in Eden, through Israel, all the way to Revelation. But there's a cadence, there's a pattern. We already talked about how Ezekiel functions as a new Adam. And so he's already been as one dead at the beginning of this book, and then the Spirit breathes upon him, and he stands up in life, right? But what we're seeing here is national, a vast army, okay? It's much bigger than that. Now, verse 11 Here he gives us the meaning of the vision. This is helpful. In no place can we be more confident in our understanding of Scripture than when Scripture tells us what Scripture means, right? And so here, verse 11, he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Okay, we were right about our vision. It is the nation of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. That's Ezekiel's audience. 
That's Ezekiel's contemporaries. It's over. All of our hopes, all of our dreams, all of God's promises, they're over. And some of them believe that's because God has forsaken them, and they're wrong. As Ezekiel has made clear over and over again, it's because they have forsaken God. However, even for the people who get that, now it's too late. We messed up. It's over. We failed, and therefore it's done. The nation is gone. So he's speaking to this audience that resonates with this because they're hopeless. They trace the storyline, and it's relatively simple. God blesses Israel, calls them, gives them the covenant, calls them to be faithful to it. They fail to be faithful to it, and he brings their judgment the end. In other words, if we were to think of this in terms of the classic works of the Greeks or of Elizabethan drama, right, this is tragedy, not comedy. It's a bad ending. And so they see it as in the curtains drawn, and it's just a valley of skeletons. But that's the amazing thing, right? That's how we generally think about death, side note, as an ending. And it is one. Israel is gone. Maybe so is your great uncle. But what we see here is a story after the story. What we see here is life after death. What we see here is that death, even the death of a nation of Israel, who he rightly, justly judged for their unfaithfulness, doesn't prohibit or end his plans. Because he's the God who brings life to death. And so, one of the mistakes I think that we would make is that as we read the history of Israel, we see God up in heaven and he's pacing back and forth going, oh man, they're blowing it. They're going to mess up all my plans. I don't know why I chose to work with human beings. God is sovereign, all-knowing. He knows the way that leads all the way through to the New Testament, through to Jesus, all the way to heaven, leads through this. The difference is, death doesn't hinder God's plans. And neither does the unfaithfulness of his nations. And so, yes, they have failed to keep their promises. That does not mean that God won't keep his. Because he is the God who brings life into death. Therefore, verse 12, prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. The same God that exiled them, can bring them back. The same God that judged them can show them mercy. The same God that brought death can bring new life. And he says, that's what I'm going to do. Now, if you think about it for a minute, which one is easier? To destroy a nation or to restore it? Right? It's, it's a head-scratcher here. If, if you're an Israelite, it's like, okay, God, sure, we're going to go back to the land, but what, the, what would that even look like? How was it that Israel went from being an enslaved people to an independent people in their own land? Just divine intervention, right? How is it that this scattered people are going to be gathered again? How is it that this desolate nation is going to be rebuilt? God's going to do it. He's going to do a significant work. In fact, verse 14, it ties to the same work we've been talking about 
last week. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. Now, I love that last sentence there. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. And here's why. Because so far in Ezekiel, that's what God has warned them with. Judgment is coming. It is irreversible. I have spoken, and I will do it. But now they have perfect evidence that God is a faithful keeper of his promises. And yet the promise here is almost too good to be true. It's a promise of hope and not a judgment. And so even here, if they're paying attention, they have an extreme object lesson of God's capability and his faithfulness to do what he says he's going to do through his prophets. This is a powerful vision that is given here. Now, it's really easy for us as as Christians who are familiar with the New Testament to see, ah, resurrection here, and think about our own selves. Think about what God has done for us and will do for us in Jesus Christ. In fact, there are some who understand this passage as being primarily about what we would call the final resurrection of the dead, the one that we find in the book of Revelation. Because this talks specifically about Israel, I would say not totally, or yes, but. I'm fine with both of those answers, because there really is a connection between all the things I just mentioned. But the promises God makes here is for the nation of Israel, and it it requires a return to the land. Did you see that? Which is something we've seen over and over again. And let me just remind you, because there are those out there who believe in what is called replacement theology, which is basically Jesus has shown up, The church is the new Israel. God is done with the Jews unless they get grafted into Christ, unless they become Christians like us and know their own Messiah. The problem with that is a significant amount of the Old Testament is when God is making specific problems to the nation of Israel, about the land of Israel, in the history of Israel. He's not finished with those. That's why Paul in Romans chapter 9 says, yes, Right now, God is working in the midst of the Gentiles, and he has turned from the Jews to show mercy on all, but how much greater will his glory be when he shows mercy to Israel again? Right When the fullness of the Gentiles come, God is going to fulfill his promises here. And so I would suggest to you that this is primarily about the nation of Israel, even though it is a perfect illustration of this bigger and broader plan that God has. Now, that's the first vision he has here. The second half of the chapter focuses on something else, and it's also a problem. But it's a problem that predates the destruction of Jerusalem. In fact, it predates the destruction of the northern tribes of Israel. You see, going all the way back to the generation after King Solomon, so we have David, Then we have David's son Solomon. And then after him, in that generation, the nation of Israel becomes two nations. The royal line of David becomes the king over Judah. And then another line of kings comes up and takes over the rest of Israel. And so from that point on, we have two kings and two kingdoms. A people ununited. Okay, and then... That continues, but that wasn't God's plan. The 12 tribes of Israel was the plan. But now, think about how complicated this is. 
Not only have they all been removed from the land, but at different times in different directions. The ten tribes scattered by Assyria. The other tribes moved over to Babylon. And so notice here in verse 15, it has to do with that problem. Verse 15, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, take a stick and write on it for Judah and the people of Israel associated with him. And then take another stick and write for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel associated with him. So he takes two sticks and he writes inscriptions on each one. This one is for Judah and all their Israelites. This one is for, he says, Joseph. Okay. Ephraim and Manasseh were two of the northern tribes. And so Joseph stands in here for the northern tribes as a whole, in the same way that Judah is actually Judah and Benjamin. Okay. And so here he has a stick representing both halves. But notice that all of them together are labeled as the people of Israel. The people of Israel associated with Judah, the people of Israel, but they're all Israel, all connected. Okay. And then he says in verse 17, and join them one to another into one stick so that they may become one in your hand. Now, I don't want you to think of this like a magic trick, like he takes these two sticks and he holds them together and now he just has one stick. I want you to think of it like a really poor illusion. Okay. He takes one stick and he takes the other one, and he holds the top of one and the bottom of the other, so they're all, it looks like a single staff, okay? He doesn't do a miracle here. This isn't like Moses turning his staff into a snake. It's an object lesson. It's an illustration, okay? But what is the illustration? It's clear. We haven't even gotten to the explanation. It's clear what it is. It's that God's going to join together the whole nation. He's going to unify what's been broken, Verse 18, and when your people say to you, will you not tell us what you mean by these? Now, side note again, I don't think Ezekiel's audience is that dull. That, I mean, it's, it's written out for them. This is Judah, this is Israel. Puts them together, right? It, it seems obvious. They're not asking so much, what do you mean, as how could this be? What do you mean, Israel and Judah are going to be united again, right? They, they don't want just what does the illustration mean, but how could this be true? Verse 19, say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am about to take the stick of Joseph that is in the hand of Ephraim and the tribes of Israel associated with him, and I will join it with the stick of Judah and make them one stick that they may be one in my hand. When the sticks on which you write are in your hand before their eyes, then say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone, and I will gather them from all around, and I will bring them to their own land, and I will make them one nation in the land, on the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be king over them, and they shall no longer be two nations, no longer divided into two kingdoms." They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them all from their backslidings in which they have sinned and I will cleanse them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. And so there's a unity, a unifying that happens and a cleansing that happens, okay, which is good because it was sin and idolatry and defilement that both broke the nation and then led to its judgment. So in other words, he's not just going to give them a second chance. Here, here's a good way to illustrate this, okay? In the New Testament, we have two Greek words that mean new, okay? 
but they mean new in different ways. One means new in time. Okay. So, for example, you buy a car and you replace your old car, it's a new car. But there's also a Greek word that means new in quality. You buy a 2020, you know, Ford Mustang, it's a new car. It's not just new to you, it's not just new chronologically, it is in quality different. Okay. What he's saying here is that he's going to make a new Israel. One that is, I hate to say judgment-proof, because I think that could be confusing, but in that sense, one that will fulfill Israel's destiny. And that, again, is what he said back in chapter 34, that I'm going to put my spirit in you. I'm going to take out your heart of stone. I'm going to replace it with a heart of flesh, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. Okay? In other words, he's not just going to do an external act of gathering them together and saying, all right, play nicely. He's going to do an internal act and change them, transform them, make them new. Okay? In fact, look at verse 24. He says, my servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. Now, if you were with us last week, this idea of a shepherd and even my shepherd David is already familiar imagery. But there is something new here, and it's fascinating. Do you see where it says, my servant David shall be king over them? Ezekiel does something really interesting in his book. This, this Hebrew word here, malak, just means king. In every other usage in Ezekiel, it refers to a foreign king. When he talks about rulers bad and good in Israel, in other words, when he talks about the kings of Israel who have failed and deserve judgment, and generally when he talks about the rulers that God will bring, he uses a much broader word that we usually translate prince, but just means ruler. In other words, he seems predisposed not to use the word king because it already has these bad connotations. Okay. We think of king, we think of Henry VIII. We think of gluttony and sex scandals. We think of somebody who takes advantage of the people. Israel, in fact, was never supposed to have a king, right? And when Israel asked for a king, give us a king like the other nations. And so Ezekiel seems to know that intuitively and stay away from that term, but not here. Here, the shepherd who's coming, my servant David, he will be king. And again, knowing that this promise is messianic, that it points forward particularly to Jesus Christ, we're probably pretty comfortable with that idea. That's why we refer to Jesus as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But it's fascinating that he just drops it in here just this one time in the middle of this prophecy. Is he comfortable? In fact, he goes on, and the next time he uses the word there, um, he, he uses rulers. So he says, They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. See how he's going all the way back to the promises of Abraham? Still on schedule. Still moving towards them. He says, They and all their children and their children's children shall dwell there. That's security forever. And my, David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. See, there's the normal term that he usually uses. It's the one he used a few chapters ago when he talked about this shepherd. He says, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them. Anytime you read the word covenant of peace, you need to think Leviticus 26. Okay? 
We did this last week, so we're not going to do it again. But just like we saw in Deuteronomy tonight, Leviticus has its version of what's coming. And the, the language of what God has given Israel is a covenant of peace. And so here it's renewed. Okay. They return to the land. He says, I'll set them in the land and multiply them. I'll set my sanctuary in the midst forevermore. Remember, that was the whole purpose. A people in the midst of which God could dwell. So he's going to do that. Verse 27, my dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people and then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. So what did it say about the Valley of Dry Bones? And then you, Israel, will know. But when he's done with Israel, all will know that God is God. Okay. Um, one last note there. What was it? No, we'll, we'll go ahead and stop there. Here's, here's something that I find very interesting, though. By the time we get to the end of this story with the two sticks, we have a much greater unification than just the two half-nations becoming one nation again. We have God and his people being joined together. I will be their God. They will be my people. And so, if you will, it's a union that points to a greater union. In fact, one of the best ways to understand the, the consequence or the problem or the symptom or the manifestation of what the Bible calls sin is in disunion. It breaks. It pushes apart. It divides. Okay. And so, when Adam and Eve choose their own morality and their own righteousness in the garden, they push away, they separate themselves from God. And what's the absolute next thing that happens? They separate themselves from one another. Adam says of Eve, it's the woman that you gave me. Right? What does he say a chapter earlier? Bone of my bone. Flesh of my flesh. But here it's the woman that you gave me. He distances himself. What happens with their children? Cain and Abel. Separation. Disagreement. Cain ends up being banished and building a city elsewhere, and so now we have opposition. We have two lineages pushing away from each other. You have the Tower of Babel, and because of their sin, they're scattered across, right? Do you see how it's, it's, um, it's entropy in scientific terms, right? It's a breaking down. It's a decaying. But the way things are going to be and what God is moving towards is a union, a drawing of things together, a restoring of what's been broken. That's why Ezekiel 37 does have a perfect New Testament parallel. Not talking about the nation of Israel and the tribes of Judah and the tribes of Benjamin becoming one again, but talking about us. I'll show you what I mean. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. If you were to summarize... Ezekiel 37 to someone, you wouldn't have a hard time doing so, would you? There we see two different things, two different promises. One is in a vision where a valley of dry bones is made to live, so we see resurrection life, and the other is in walls broken down and unity given. Amazingly, when Paul tells us what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, these are the primary places he goes. So look at Ephesians 2 verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Okay, now this is talking about Christians. 
This applies to all of us here tonight. And you were what? Dead. The problem is not, and you were bad, or ill, or slightly broken, or in need of a tune-up. Dead. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I've read the Bible a lot. I still think that is the densest and darkest description of human nature in the whole Bible. So much going on there. But let's just go back to, and you were dead. And then notice what it says in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. When we ask the question, what is it that, that Christianity offers? It is resurrection. And not just in the sense of like eternal life in heaven, it's in the sense of right now. It's not, and you are dead and God will, future tense, make you alive, and you were dead and God has, past tense, made you alive. It's resurrection. And like Israel, it's not something we do. It's not like we're, you know, laying there in our coffin and we have some sort of after-death epiphany on how to live again. It's not that we make our promises or twist God's arm, right? Because of his great mercy, God just made us alive. He does what we cannot do. Okay? So it's this powerful imagery of life out of death. But as he continues on here, notice where he goes next in verse 11. He says, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what's called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Do you see there how he gives us two teams? It's a little bit different than skins and shirts, but circumcised and uncircumcised, Jews and Gentiles, division, two, separate, but notice what he says in 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. So it's not just separated Jews and Gentiles, separated from God as well. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, interesting, and without God in the world but now. In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, listen to this, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two and so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. Do you see how that parallels the second part of what we read in Ezekiel? The two become one and then they're unified with God. The reason, the reason why we recognize in Ezekiel things that seem familiar to us is because it's the self-same God with the self-same plan of salvation. And one of the amazing things about the Bible is how often God repeats the pattern, how often the scriptures echo, how often we find types in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in Jesus Christ, how often the story repeats itself but in the big picture, this won't be a repetition of the garden. 
Because unlike when Eve ate and Adam followed, Christ came and offered himself in Eve's place. He changed the pattern. Right? Opening book of Matthew. Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Boy, it sounds a lot like Genesis chapter 3. And yet it goes differently. It is written, Jesus responds, and he withstands the temptation of the devil. Right? New pattern. And how does the pattern change? Because Jesus is God become flesh. God steps in, takes on our humanity, then takes our sin upon that perfect and sinless humanity so that we might become the sons of God, so that the Spirit might fall upon us, so that he might take us from death to life, or as it says in Colossians, from darkness to light. But the second part of that, a natural consequence of that, is restoration of relationship. Reconciliation, the tearing down of uh, walls of nationalism and racism and economic divide. Because Jesus doesn't just pay for our sins. He removes them. He changes us. He transforms us. He imparts to us his spirit, which leads into obedience. You see how all of this fits together? In other words, what I'm saying is, We should find ourselves in Ezekiel 37. We just need to recognize that God isn't done with Israel yet. We have the first fruits of what he promised Israel because he's that merciful and that great, but he still has plans. Okay. So, that brings us to chapter 38. Now, chapter 38 and chapter 39 go together. And if you are the type to attend prophecy conferences or watch very deep YouTube, uh, YouTube videos about what's going on in the Middle East and how it relates to the Bible, Ezekiel 38 and 39 is bread and butter right now. Everybody's wondering if these things are coming to pass in our days. Okay, But let's just look at a few things here. Chapter 38, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set your face towards Gog of the land of Magog, chief prince. Okay. So get what's going on here. It can be hard to follow. Gog would be the ruler of Magog. Gog of Magog. Okay. And then he is a representative or a chief prince over, and it gives us three more names, Meshech and Tubal. Sorry, two more names. Okay. Gog of Magog over Meshech and Tubal. Okay. Now, most likely, we will fail if we just follow the newspaper looking for Mr. Gog. Almost all commentators throughout history are convinced here that Gog operates as a title like Pharaoh, okay, and not a first or last name. Okay. But what do we know about Magog, about Meshech, and about Tubal? Okay, now here's the first thing that you should know. These are not traditional enemies of Israel. You can thumb through Israel's whole history, go through 1 Samuel, 2 Kings, Chronicles, all of the prophets leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem, you're not going to see these names. Magog, Meshech, and Tubal, if you want to find them, you have to go all the way back to Genesis 10 before there was an Israel. In fact, before there was an Abraham. Okay. So let's do that really quick. Genesis 10, verse 2. Genesis 10 follows the story of the Tower of Babel. So, let us make a name unto ourselves. Let us build a tower as unto heaven. And God comes down, confuses the language, and the nations scatter. Okay? 
In the midst of that, Genesis 10 records, if you will, the genealogy of Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, as they spread across the world, and we get, you know, all of the, the if you will, the, the OPs, the original people groups, the OPGs, okay? Um, and so here we have what we sometimes call the table of nations. But I want you to notice what happens in round one, verse two. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, and Meshech. Magog, Tubal, Meshech, right there. Okay. So in other words, Ezekiel is not using new names, very, very old ones. Okay. And ones that somehow have a relationship, okay? What we believe about the table of nations is that these families, because of their bloodlines, even as they spread out, generally stuck together, okay? So the sons of Japheth all headed out in the same area and then spread out from there, okay? Now, that's two things we've seen. We've seen here that these names are drawn right from the table of nations, right? Original people groups types names. We've seen that they're not historical enemies of Israel, right? This isn't modern-day Syria. This isn't Assyria or Babylon or Edom or, uh, or Arabia or any of the other places that we're used to finding enmity. They're completely new. And actually, that's part of the point. Let's keep reading. Verse 3, and say, thus says the Lord God, behold, I'm against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and I will turn you about and put hooks in your jaws, and I will bring you out, all your army of horses and horsemen, all of them clothed in full, army, uh, full armor, a great host, all of them with buckler and shield-wielding swords. Okay? But it's not just going to be Magog. Here we see there's going to be an alliance, and these are names we know. Look at verse 5. Persia, Cush, uh, that's Ethiopia, Put, that's uh, modern-day Libya, with them, all with their shields and helmet, Gomer, which is actually a name that we saw, also a son of Japheth, just a side note, all of his hordes, Beth Togma from the uttermost parts of the north with his hordes, many people are with you. Okay, just a few things here. One, what we see when we count all the names on the list is a seven-nation army. Okay, it's an alliance. It's headed by this prince, Second, the nations that he does gather are all relatively close to Israel, except for two things. Some of them are north of Israel, and some of them are south of Israel. In other words, when these seven come together, they surround Israel. But we also find out, as it says there, that Gog is going to come from the uttermost parts of the north with all his hordes. That is the most telling description we get of Magog. Really, really far north. Okay. So start in Israel and start walking north. Somewhere far, far away, that's Magog. Okay. Now, when it says back in verse 2 that he is the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, it has become very popular in the last century and a little bit longer, to be fair. There were some Jewish interpreters going quite a ways back to interpret this uh, word as prince here as, as a name and not a word. Chief prince here is the word Rosh. Okay, so here's, here's how this goes. Rosh, Russia. Meshech, 
Moscow, Tubal, Tobolsk. Okay. And so there's a suggestion, and it's not necessarily a bad one, that what we're talking about is a massive Russian force. And it's worth pointing out that Moscow is directly due north of Jerusalem, just really, really far north. Okay. But There's no other biblical connection to those names. The, the main thing that theory has going through it is that it sounds similar. Rosh sounds like Russia. Meshech sounds kind of like Moscow. Tubal sounds kind of like Tobolsk. But when we look at ancient writings, for example, Josephus tells us a whole bunch about the ancient world from a Jewish perspective. When he talks about where some of these places are, specifically Meshech and Tubal, we're talking Caspian Sea. Okay? We're not talking the outer reaches of the USSR. Okay. So I don't think you can say with confidence who this is, but we can say that it's a massive army that comes from the north, not a usual enemy of Israel, and it partners with the nations around Israel who, have, uh, who want to see Israel dead. Okay. Second thing we should add right here. Clearly, for this nation to attack Israel, Israel must be what? A nation. They have to be back in the land. Right? Gog and Magog didn't happen while Ezekiel was alive in Babylon because there was no Israel to attack. In fact, although Israel does come back into the land in the days, for example, of Nehemiah, they don't come as an independent nation but as under the Persians and then as under the Greeks who conquer the Persians and then as under the Rome, that's why there's so many centurions in Jesus' day, right? Because Israel right then is a Roman province owned by Rome. And then in 70 AD, because of the uprisings of Israel and because of Rome's standard policy to stomp uprisings, they flatten Jerusalem again. 70 AD, General Titus comes in, levels it to the ground. Okay? So... Do we see what follows here, Gog and Magog, happening before 70 AD? We do, definitely do not. But then we've got a problem again, because starting in 70 AD, all the way until the 1940s, no Israel. Okay. Let's just keep that in mind. But let's keep going. So God says here, I'm going to draw you out like if you put a hook in a fish's mouth. I'm going to reel you in. And I'm going to be the one drawing you to Israel. But what does Gog think about this? Verse 7. Be ready and keep ready, all you hosts that are assembled about you, and be on guard for them. After many days you will be mustered. In fact, in the latter years. You see how he's pushing the timeline way out? Okay. In the latter years you will go against the land that is restored from war, the land whose people were gathered from many peoples upon the mountains of Israel, Side note, do you remember how we saw that? I'm going, to I'm going to fill again the mountains of Israel. The language is intentionally parallel. So after the restoration of Israel, this is going to go down. Which had been a continual waste. Its people were brought out from the peoples and now dwell securely, all of them. Okay. So Israel is a state. They're relatively secure. And presumably out of the blue, here comes Gog and these armies Verse 9, you will advance coming on like a storm. You'll be like a cloud covering the land, you and all your hordes and many people with you. Thus says the Lord God, on that day, 
Thoughts will come into your mind and you will devise an evil scheme. So how's this going to go down in Gog's head? He's going to have a thought. Wherever his throne is, way to the north, he's going to think, huh, verse uh, 11, and say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will fall upon the quiet people who dwell securely, all of them dwelling without walls and having no bars or gates. So in other words, he sees two things. One, vulnerability. He says, I could take them. They're unprotected. They're vulnerable to attack. And then second, to seize spoil and to carry off plunder and to turn your hand against the waste places that are now inhabited and the people who were gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and goods who dwell at the center of the earth. So here we learn a third thing about Israel. They're flourishing. And it's the possibility of spoiling that. And I don't mean ruining it. I mean taking it, right? That draws this king from the north to attack, okay? In other words, this is not a just war. This is not Israel attacked, and so we're going to respond in kind. This is not a breakdown of, um, of geopolitical relations. This is just the decision of a king to take advantage of another nation. Okay? Verse 13, Sheba and Dadan and the merchants of Tarshish, Tarshish and all its leaders will say to you, have you come to seize spoil? Sheba, Dadan, and Tarshish, they're all east of Israel, they're all Mediterranean towns, and they're all trading capitals. In fact, if you were with us way before COVID in Ezekiel, you know that, uh, that Tarshish is condemned by Ezekiel for feeling like they are too big to fail economically, because they run the sea trade of the ancient world. So here, they're looking on, and they're watching this, and they ask Gog a question, and the question is, have you come to seize the spoil? There's two ways to read this. This is either nations beyond this seven-nation army calling foul and going, hey, wait a minute, what's going on here? Right? Just like we do, uh, think, of, think of Crimea, right? To use an explicitly Russian point, right? Where suddenly they're like, you know what? This is our land now. And the whole world goes, wait, what? The other possible, possibility, and I would suggest this is more likely, is they recognize that Russia the thief is going to need a fence. Right? Somebody had helped them sell and market their goods. And so they're coming and going, ooh, is there going to be some action? This is going to be great for the stock market. Right? I would say that's more likely the idea here. But the point is that it's got a worldwide audience he continue, they continue to ask, have you assembled your host to carry off plunder and carry away silver and gold to take away livestock and goods and to seize great spoil? Therefore, verse 14, son of man, prophesy and say to Gog, thus says the Lord God, on that day when my people of Israel are dwelling securely, will you not know it? You will come from your place out of the uttermost parts of the north, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great host, mighty army, which just means, you know, giant military array in a way that Ezekiel would understand. Verse 16, you'll come up against my people Israel like a cloud covering the land. In the latter days, I will bring you against my land that the nations may know me when through you, O Gog, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Now that requires a little bit of explanation. And this explains why Ezekiel is telling 
people who are his contemporaries about an event that they will not see happen. Because what has this people just endured? A nation that has devastated them. In fact, a nation that has boasted, clearly our gods are superior to your gods because your God lost. And so we saw last week that God was going to lay out a plan to redeem his name. His character required justice on Israel's sins, but he also knew that it would lead to the blasphemy of the nations because their God didn't protect them. So what we have here is a chance for God to redeem that character. And the difference here is the deck is stacked against Israel. He says, I'm going to bring you out and I'm going to demonstrate my holiness. And side note, as we'll see, it's not going to be because he's going to make, uh, you know, the whole army of the Jews into Arnold Schwarzenegger's and they're going to storm the thing and win the battle. He's going to do something different. So, verse 17. Thus says the Lord God, Are you he of whom I spoke in former days by my servants, the prophets of Israel, who in those days prophesied for years that I would bring you against them? That's a significant clue that we don't have time to get into, but what does God say here to Gog? He says, Ezekiel's not the only one I've told about you. Right? Whatever we're talking about here, it's already existing in the prophets that come before. I would suggest to you Zechariah is a good place to look. Okay? Continuing on here, verse 20. The fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field and all the creeping things that creep on the ground and all the people who are on the face of the earth shall quake at my presence. And the mountains shall be thrown down and the cliffs shall fall and every wall shall tumble to the ground. So first thing that's going to happen is the equivalent of a natural disaster. God is going to intervene in the, in the thing that a weatherman calls an act of God, right? It's going to show up in the natural elements. And then verse 21, I will summon a sword against Gog on all my mountains, declares the Lord. Every man's sword will be against his brother. What happens next? chaos within their own army. They begin to draw swords on one another. Okay? And this is actually classic battles of Israel. Go back and read in Samuel at how many times the armies of Israel stand against their enemies and God causes confusion on their enemies and they end up killing themselves, right? Verse 22, with pestilence and bloodshed, I will enter into judgment with them. I will rain upon him and his hordes and the many people who are with him, torrential rains, hailstones, fire, and sulfur. What's missing from this again? The armies of Israel, right? They probably haven't even had a chance to react. I want you to envision the broad areas around Israel that are full of huge valleys, like Armageddon comes from Har-Megiddo, the Valley of Megiddo. It's a very big valley, okay? Imagine it filled with people on the ready to attack Israel, and then suddenly, just complete chaos, Verse 23, so I will show my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of many nations and they will know that I am the Lord. Now, I want to keep reading here because chapter 39 revisits everything we just read and adds more details in, okay? So a lot of it we can just recognize and then I'll draw out the things that are new. Chapter 39, verse 1, and you, son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, thus says the Lord God, behold, I'm against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and I will turn you about and drive you forward and bring you up from the uttermost parts of the north and lead you against the mountains of Israel. Then I will strike your bow from your left hand and I will make your arrow drop out of your right hand. You shall fall on the mountains of Israel, you and all your hordes and the people who are with you. 
I will give you to the birds of prey of every sort and to the beasts of the field to be devoured. Does that sound familiar? Right? Those were the covenantal curses that led to the valley of dry bones. And so here it's the same circumstance, but it's moving in the different direction. Here these people attack God's people Israel, and they're the ones who are going to be a feast for the carrion birds. Verse 5, you shall fall in the open field, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God, and I will send fire on Magog and on those who dwell securely in the coastlands, and they shall know that I am the Lord. So it's not just going to be a local happening. I would suggest the way that you should read this is there's going to be such a significant natural disaster, although there's always the commentator who wants to mention nukes, that's going to so destroy the nation, there won't be one anymore. Verse 7, And my holy name I will make known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let my holy name be profaned anymore. And the nation shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. Behold, it is coming. And it will be brought about, declares the Lord God. This is the day of which I have spoken. Let's keep reading verse 9. Those who dwell in the cities of Israel will go out and make fires of the weapons and burn them, shields and bucklers, bows and arrows, clubs, spears, and they will make fires of them for seven years. Notice this is the first time we finally find the citizens of Israel, and they're in the aftermath. They're after the battle, and they're just involved in the cleanup. Now, I want you to notice something that's really interesting here. Now, side note, Israel's had a lot of war. If you get the chance to visit, you will see old weapons of war. You will see tanks that have been abandoned and have just become part of the landscape. It's surreal. We have nothing compared to that in America. Okay. But notice here what they don't do. They don't harvest the weapons. Right? Usually, take the arsenal, it doesn't matter what point you are in history, a bunch of people leave their weapons behind and you go, all right, we also need weapons. But Israel destroys all the weapons. Why? What have they just learned? We are secure. God has us. And this is another struggle that you see throughout Israel's history. Will they trust that God can protect them or will they seek to protect themselves? But second, notice not only do they make these fires and there's so much because the army was so big, it's a seven-year project just to, to dismantle the armory. Verse 10, so they will not need to take wood out of the field or cut down any of the forests, for they will make fires of the weapons. They will seize the spoil of those who despoiled them and plunder those who plundered them, declares the Lord God. Notice there's a, a poetic justice to that, right? The plunderer becomes the one who is plundered. On that day, verse 11, I will give, Gog, give to Gog a place for burial in Israel, the valley of travelers east of the sea. It'll block the travelers, for there Gog and all his multitude will be buried. It will be called the valley of Hammon Gog. So he's going to bury the army there. And, and again, when you think of the scale of this, this is a massive cleanup project, right? But I want you to recognize this isn't just about this isn't just about, you know, clearing corpses like we would clean up landmines after Vietnam. This is about desecration. Okay? The, the land is filled with bodies. And also, is it surprising to you that this horrible enemy of Israel, they go out and with their own blood, sweat, and tears, they dig the graves and they make the memorial, they name a city after this to remember this and bury these people? 
I would suggest to you we're seeing a semblance of a different Israel here. Okay. Verse 13, all the people of the land will bury them and it will bring them renown on that day. I will show my glory, declares the Lord God. They'll set apart men to travel through the land regularly and bury those travelers remaining on the face of the land so as to cleanse it, like I said, desecrated. At the end of seven months, they will make their search. And when these travel through the land and anyone sees a human bone, he shall set up a sign by it till the barriers have buried it in the valley of Ham and Gog, which I think is just a way of saying that it is an orchestrated effort, right? And so there's the bone identifiers. Again, I, I like the landmines illustration. I don't know how to dismantle a landmine, but that's one. He pops his sign down, right? In the same way, look, there's bones there, but another team comes in and takes care of the burial. Uh, Hamona is also the name of the city. There is no Hamona in Israel. It's a new city that's built just to memorialize this. It means multitude. Thus they shall cleanse the land. Verse 17, as for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to the birds of every sort and all the beasts of the field, assemble and come and gather from around to the sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you, a great sacrificial feast on the mountains of Israel, and you shall eat the flesh and drink blood. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty and drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams, of lambs, and of he goats, of bulls, all of them fasts, fat beasts of Bashan. In other words, <coughs> there's going to be a natural part of the cleanup process as well. Okay. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Revelation, there is an occasion very similar to this where God calls for, again, the carrion birds to come and feast on the kings. That may be a viable and important reference point to this chapter. When we get to the end of it, we'll talk about where to fit this in the timeline of what the Bible lays out. Verse 19, you shall eat fat till you're filled and drink blood till you're drunk and the sacrificial feast that I'm preparing for you and you shall be filled at my table with horses and charioteers, with mighty men and all kinds of warriors, declares the Lord God. And I will set my glory among the nations. And the nations shall see my judgment that I have executed and my hand that I have laid on them. The house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward. And the nations shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity because they dealt so treacherously with me that I hid my face from them and gave them into the hand of their adversaries, and they all fell by the sword. In other words, when God does this, his power will no longer be in question. And they'll rightly answer the equation, how is it that Israel was kicked out of the land to begin with? Because of their sins and because God is just, just like he was just with Gog of Magog. I dealt with them according to their uncleanness and their transgressions and hid my face from them. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous for my holy name. They shall forget their shame and all their treachery that they've practiced against me when they dwell securely in their land with none to make them afraid. When I have brought them back from the peoples and gathered them from their enemies' lands and through them have vindicated my holiness in the sight of many nations, then they shall know that I am the Lord their God because I sent them into exile among the nations and then assembled them into their own land. I will leave none of them remaining among the nations anymore and I will not hide my face anymore from them. I will pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. Now, the question becomes, where does this fit 
in with the rest of what the Bible says is coming. And there's a couple of alternatives here. If you read the book of Revelation, you have, like I said, the Battle of Armageddon. Okay? This is what culminates in the return of Christ. The difference between that battle and what we read here is, one, that's pretty much everybody. All the nations of the world decide to deal with the Jewish problem, problem to eradicate Israel, whereas here it seems like it's just a constituency. Um, second, uh, well, let's deal with that in a second. The second battle in Revelation that's also interesting is after that, Jesus returns, thousand-year reign of Christ, and then it says Satan's released for a time, and then an army gathers again, this time not just to stand against Israel, but to stand against Jesus. And a bunch of people from the nations that have been serving under the rule of Christ will gather together in rebellion, inspired by Satan, and stand against Jesus. Interestingly enough, you can see this for yourself in Revelation chapter 20, when it says, and all the nations will come from every corner of the earth, it says Gog and Magog. But I would suggest that's a measurement of distance, not an assigning of leadership. So I think it's related here, but again, it's talking about to the ends of the earth. You'll see that in the text. What I think is the most compelling idea here is that this battle actually predates both of those. In fact, it predates the seven years of great tribulation that the book of Revelation happens about. In other words, I would suggest that this is about a solidifying of the nation of Israel as the people of God prior to what plays out. In fact, some commentators, I thought this was really appealing suggests that the destruction of Magog may be what leads to the transition in the powers of the world order that lead to the, the um, exalting of the Antichrist, the peace treaty with Israel. In other words, this country is the only thing restraining the final step for a new world order. I just find that more compelling, but the truth is there's not enough here to tell you, and that should be fine. Because Ezekiel's point here is not to tell us what will happen so we can spot it in the headlines. It's to assure us, to assure us that God is capable of protecting his people and that he is zealous, as we've seen over again for his holiness. If you want a real New Testament comparison of this passage, I would suggest you should think of Romans chapter 8, where the question comes up, who shall separate us from the love of God? Neither death, nor life, nor power, nor principality, nor sword, nor things that are made, nor things that are unmade. Nothing shall separate us from the love of God. That's the confidence that Ezekiel's trying to instill in the culmination, the climax of God's plan. Eternal security. Okay? And so you can study these things deeper. I would even encourage you to try. I'm never going to tell you that studying the Bible closer is a bad idea but definitely study it with humility. Remember that we can look at the passages of Scripture and identify Jesus as the Messiah, but those standing around him struggle to do so. Okay. It is always easier to understand what the Bible meant after it happened, and I will tell you clearly right here, Ezekiel seems okay with that scenario. What is he not saying here? He's not saying, watch out, because when this happens, you better stock up on canned goods and hide in the basement. No. He says, when this happens, you will know that the God who said he would do had done what he said he would do, and therefore is the God who is worthy of worship.
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word in all of its beauty and eccentricities and difficulties. We thank you for uh, these patterns, the way that you are consistent in your character and the way that your salvation echoes throughout history. We thank you that just like Ezekiel's audience, we know what it's like to be dead and be brought to life. We thank you that just like Ezekiel's audience, we can trust in our security, that nothing will stand against God's elect. And we pray as well, Lord, that um, as this is a time of unrest, as it is a time of confusion, as it is a time where where it feels like change and maybe not good change at the geopolitical level is right on the cusp. We pray, Lord, that we'd be able to set ourselves in the shoes of Ezekiel's audience who have lost everything and yet know that God who drives history and therefore have reason to hope. We pray that you would produce that in us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.